everyone, and welcome to FabGab. This is the podcast for the International Journal of Feminist Approaches to Bioethics, brought to you by Fab Network. My name is Catherine McKay, and today I'm joined by Carrie Harwood from NC State University, that's North Carolina. And uh, Carrie's here with me to discuss her paper, Witch Eugenics, Expanding Access to ART, Respecting Procreative Liberty, and Protecting the Moral Equality of All Persons in an Era of Neoliberal Choice. And this paper appears in volume 13, number two of IJFAB. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. This is great. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How about you? I'm good, thank you. Um, I really enjoyed reading your paper. I thought this was really interesting. Um, And so I wonder if for the listeners, you might give us a kind of elevator pitch summary of of the paper here. Sure. Well, the paper is essentially a really long response to a (laughs) book by Judith Darr called The New Eugenics, Selective Breeding in an Era of Reproductive Technologies which she published in 2017. And in that book, she argues for expanding access to assisted reproductive technologies as a matter of justice, because a lot of people have been left out of those resources and unable to form families. So on the one hand, I my paper is kind of an appreciative um, engagement with that book, but then there's the critical piece too, where I ask um, or sort of raise the issue of what I refer to as the eugenic mentality, because in my view, Dar's book was a little too quick to dismiss some of the eugenic potential of some of these new uh, reproductive and genetic technologies like PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And now, I mean, even since she wrote the book, you know, CRISPR and its potential uses open that question even further. So part of my book is, yes, it's a good idea to expand access, but there are some things we should still be cautious about and that we should still be able to talk about Mm -hmm. in terms of the potential of some of these technologies to um, enable a eugenic mentality, which I, you know, I'm borrowing that particular term from the Catholic church. Mm. And it's really easier to think of it in terms of quality control kind of in the creation of offspring that Mm. you would bring to your choices, uh, you know, a mindset of quality control. And to me that triggers concerns about discrimination and equality. So I don't know if that's like a good short elevator. (laughs) Some of the the issues that I talk about. No, that's great. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what the eugenic mentality is. Well, it's the idea that we are positioned to judge the worth and value of other human beings. Okay. Um, So taken to its most egregious extreme, Uh, we see what happened with the eugenics movement in the 20th century. And actually the whole beginning part of the paper kind of contextualizes this term eugenic mentality by looking back in history and looking at the eugenic movement in the United States in the early 20th century 
and how that was embraced as a, as a positive thing. I mean, it was viewed, eugenics was viewed positively as a way to alleviate suffering and, you know, prevent, prevent the birth of people who would suffer, who would be a drain on society. You know, it was really conceptualized as a positive progressive use of technology. Now, now, of course, we look back and we scoff at how um, limited their knowledge of genetics really was. And they were making very erroneous, you know, faulty and erroneous assumptions about how things were inherited, traits were inherited, like this old fashioned term feeble mindedness. That was one of the things that mm. was worried about. And then obviously, you know, after our <laughs> experience with eugenics and the forced sterilizations that took place in this country, of course, Nazi Germany, Germany took eugenics to it, its most egregious uh, logical extreme. It's out of that history. It's with that in the background that I'm engaging this new book, this new argument by Judith Jarr. Um, and she's saying, yeah, there is a new quote unquote new eugenics we need to worry about, but it's not designer babies. It's not what you might have thought. It's actually that we're excluding whole categories of people from using ART. Poor people who can't afford it, minorities who might be discriminated against, LGBTQ community, single individuals, you know, a whole, the whole swath of people that experience social infertility. Um, and more are being left out. So that's her take on kind of 21st century eugenics. Mm -hmm. There, you know, as whereas in the 20th century, certain people were being sterilized who were deemed less valuable as human beings. Now certain people are being shut out of ART. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I thought that was actually a really interesting point that she makes. It is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you could see the cumulative effect of that possibly being really enormous, which I guess is her point that it's a kind of population level. But I feel like your point, one of your points in the paper is that we tend to see this, and I guess this is getting into the neoliberal choice aspect of your paper as a question of what individuals are doing rather than seeing it as the, the potential population level effects of these choices? Well, yeah, I, um, I do think she has an excellent point. And I do think that as a matter of justice, these things, these technologies need to be made more accessible. So it's not that I'm disagreeing with her on that. I do mm -hmm. question whether like the intentionality is the same. You know, I, I, at one point in the paper, I say forcibly sterilizing someone isn't the same as providing, you know, ART for a single person, that those yeah. things just aren't really truly analogous. But she's more comfortable than I am, I think just turning over, you know, it, for example, she, you know, she's very comfortable with procreative liberty and, and doesn't really propose any, any real limits on that. So if a, if a, prospective parents wanted to have a deaf child or wanted to have any, you know, select for any number of traits. She's okay with that. You know, she's neutral on, in terms of um, individual procreative choices. I would say that I'm just a little more cautious and a little more 
eager to have a conversation about what those individual choices could add up to over time. I mean, yes, it's not state coercion. It's not mm-hmm. the state telling you, um, you, you know, this person needs to be sterilized or you need to select this kind of child and not that kind of child. But um, individual choices can also have a cumulative effect mm-hmm. and can be uh, create pressures in their own right. And I all sort of all I'm asking for is this, this space to have a conversation about that, to sort of still be willing to have a conversation about how some of these choices might be changing the nature of reproduction and changing the nature of the parent-child relationship. Mm-hmm. Or, the, you know, how parents and children stand in relation to each other is probably more what I mean to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it would be really helpful to hear, I guess, kind of what you think some of the sort of main main points of your argument are in the paper, because clearly one of the points is that you'd like, you just want to sort of open the field for conversation, make sure that we're interrogating the values that are going into these kinds of choices um, before simply saying, okay, let's just wide open, let's just let the market take care right. of itself. Just, <laughs> right. Which I think we should always be careful <laughs> when we're making that kind of proposal. So, um, yeah, I just think it would be interesting for the listener to hear um, maybe a couple of the points that kind of get you there or that you think we should take from there sort of forward. You know, I think one concrete example that might help the listeners connect mm. who haven't read the paper, I, I sort of mentioned in passing this issue of unregulated sperm donation in the United yeah. States. Mm-hmm. And, you know, since I published this article, I read something just the other day in the New York Times, the case of the serial sperm donor. Some some guy <laughs> they think is, you know, possibly fathered over a thousand kids. I mean, he's been, yeah, he's been donating both at sperm banks and kind of unofficially through Facebook pages. I mean, he's, he's fathered a lot of children, right? Wow. So you know, on, it is perfectly possible to say on the one hand, yes, people should be free to use sperm donors. People should be free to donate their sperm. And on the other hand, say, well, we still need to have, proceed with some caution here. Maybe we should have <laughs> some restrictions in the U.S. I, all we really have is a recommendation from the American Society of Reproductive Medicine that, um, you know, and, and it, it's it's pretty lenient about how many um, children could result from a single sperm donor. Other countries in Europe are more specific and constrained. Mm-hmm. But I think it's not unreasonable to be concerned about the impact on the resulting children. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm sure they're glad to be alive, right? They, they, they're glad to have their lives, but to be... Uh, made aware of, you know, 800 potential half siblings would be at the least disconcerting. So there are other, there are other values at stake, right? There are other people in this equation, the resulting children. So being aware of that and acknowledging that that is a moral value too, pushes back against that individual reproductive freedom that it, you know, there really are some uh, reasonable countervailing interests that should constrain that. So that's a, that's a concrete example, like the free for all that has become sperm donation 
is an example of um, where an area of reproductive choice that perhaps could stand uh, some some limitation. So I think one important and, and pretty controversial point in my paper is this transition from thinking of procreative liberty as a negative right to a positive right or entitlement. So I spend a while talking about that and talking about what I think Judith Dar's position is on that and, and um, what some other scholars have said about that. Uh, I think I referenced Kimberly Mucherson um, from Rutgers and, you know, thinking of procreative liberty as a negative right is just freedom from interference. And that is, you know, traditionally how we thought of it. And that's how John Robertson writes about it. Um, but transitioning to thinking of it as a positive right or entitlement, I think possibly has some risks, has some, some problems that come with it. And that's part of what I talk about in the paper, but, you know, I did that knowing full well that that was perhaps the most controversial and potentially problematic point that would get, that might get some pushback, right? Mm. Um, because if I'm saying, well, maybe we don't want to go down the road of thinking of it as a positive right or entitlement, meaning that's, you know, you're entitled to assistance, you're entitled to, to help with it, that could be interpreted as being um, against non-traditional families, which is not at all the message that I wanted to convey. But I, I knew that was a risk and sort of bringing that up as an issue. Mm. That's interesting. So just as a point of kind of crafting your argument and, and writing the paper, how did you, since you knew that that was going to be potentially a sticky issue, how did you kind of approach it? How did you, I guess, think through how you were going to present your view and kind of walk that middle line? Well, um, I, I guess I, I looked and read other people to see how they've navigated those waters. Mm -hmm. um, I found Amanda Roth's article really interesting. I don't know if you've, um, you've read that piece, but I talk about it somewhere in, in my article. It's, mm -hmm. it's her, her actually, it was published in the Kennedy Institute of Ethics. So it was, it's called Queer Family Values and Reciprocal IVF. Mm -hmm. What difference does sexual identity make? And um, I don't know if this is, a, if I'm necessarily answering your question very directly, but she, she talks about, she's at least open to criticizing the use of reciprocal IVF insofar as she says it's imitating or mimicking heterosexual uh, family form formation by so emphasizing the importance of genetic connections. And she says, hey, you know, queer family va values, insofar as we can speak of them generally, have, have really um, embraced families of, of, of our choosing and not necessarily based on genetic connections. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she, I thought, was a good model of someone who's saying, yes, I support queer family formation. I support freedom of choice. I support procreative liberty. But I still think it's, it, there's room to be 
skeptical, to be critical, to wonder whether this was a really good use of this technology. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't mean you're, you know, against queer families. It just means that you're open to, to questioning the use of that particular technology, whether it's really in keeping with values that you, you know, believe in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in her case, she's pointing out geneticism. They, that's the term that we've all settled on using, meaning that it's extremely important to have a genetic connection to your child. Mm-hmm. And you'll go to great lengths to accomplish it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Something that myself and a number of other people are quite critical of, <laughs> kind of overvaluing. Of overvaluing, yeah. Genetic connection. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't mean you don't understand it as a perfectly, you know, under, plausible and, and uh, typical desire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Oh, that's very interesting. And I think that kind of, I think hearing about how some bits of writing papers can be difficult or how you kind of, yeah. you can recognize that there's a, that there are difficult bits to navigate uh, is just interesting to hear about how people kind of tackle that, especially for folks who are listening, who are younger academics or yeah. just starting out writing papers. It can be really, that's, it's sometimes difficult to know, you know, you see a hazard up ahead, and you're kind of like, how will I get through this? It is difficult because, you know, you want to engage in honest and earnest conversation about things that matter. Mm-hmm. But you also want to be extremely careful that you've said what you mean and that you've been respectful and that you've really thought through, you know, the objections that will will be raised. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. So I guess we've kind of covered off the main points of your paper and sort of um, talked about what it's about a bit. So I just wonder if there's a sort of primary takeaway message that you'd like or that you hope people will glean from the paper. And I guess I'm sort of curious to know, do you, do you foresee, are you hoping that maybe you'll get a response um, from <laughs> Judith Dar and kind of engage in like a, a dialogue or what? Or? I, I would love that, but I, you know, that would, that would be, or, you know, anyone who's mm. has the time to sort of <laughs> respond and, and, and raise the objections that need to be raised. I, I would of course really relish that. Mm. I mean, I think the most basic takeaway is, you know, it's always a good exercise <clears throat> to imagine how a future generation might assess our current practices. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's easy for us to look back at the American eugenics movement in the 20th century and see all the ways in which it was really <laughs> misguided. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that teaches us anything, it's that we should always remember that sometimes we do get things really wrong and that it, it's important to listen to dissenting voices. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, they deserve at least some consideration. I use or rely heavily on a a book that I really enjoyed reading years ago now, Christine Rosen's Preaching Eugenics, which talked a lot about the church in the United States, Mm -hmm. Protestant and Catholic churches, and how deeply involved they were in the American Eugenics Society. And, um, you know, there's a difference there, though, in that the Protestants uh, were much more enthusiastic 
and had sermon writing contests and uh, really embraced the eugenics movement in the early 20th century. And the, the Catholics were more skeptical. Mm-hmm. They were kind of written off because, you know, of soup, you know, really prejudiced towards Catholics. No, that's just, they're being superstitious. They're not scientific. Mm-hmm. Um, but they sort of had this consistent opposition to the, the eugenic mentality that really mm-hmm. wasn't our place to sort of judge the value of our fellow human beings based on intelligence or beauty or any other trait. Now you can take their position and translate it perfectly well into a secular vocabulary of respecting equality. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, you know, the disability rights activists have, have articulated that much better than I can mm-hmm. in, in terms of the importance of really respecting the wide range of, of uh, humanity that's out there in terms of ability. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think that was one of the things that I really took away from your paper was that um, there are certain voices from certain corners of the intellectual <laughs> playing field um, that tend to be discounted. And I think religious voices are definitely one of those. And I think mm-hmm. perhaps in bioethics, I don't want to speak for everyone and I, you know, I don't want to make too many generalizations, but my impression is that religion is seen as a barrier in certain kinds of bioethical debates, especially when it comes to certain procreative liberties and especially women's rights Mm. to getting proper uh, reproductive health care and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it's very, it was interesting to me and I have been thinking about this quite a bit actually lately to kind of think that I dismiss too quickly certain mm-hmm. kinds of um, perspectives. So keeping an open mind towards even just the fact that really useful ideas might come out of places that we don't expect. Exactly. Like- <laughs> <laughs> that is essentially my point of view. You know. <laughs> Or you might come across an interesting insight and, you know, why waste it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No. But I actually, um, I teach a class called religion, gender and reproductive technologies. Oh, and interesting. And a few different religions mm. and they're, you know, both what their official teachings might be mm. about things like contraception or abortion or reproductive technologies, but also how, people live their lives who, who are, you know, adhere to those religions. Those are not one and the same thing necessarily, you know, official teaching versus lived experience. I find it's a really good exercise in appreciating the diversity, you know, of views that exist between and within yeah. religious traditions. It's, it's more complex than my students tend to, you know, assume at the outset. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks so much for speaking with me, Carrie. This has been a really great discussion. Oh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. My pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of FabGab. You can find Carrie's paper linked in the episode's notes, along with a transcript of our conversation. And you can find other episodes of FabGab on Spotify, Radio Public, Anchor, or wherever else you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.